Well, this morning we're coming to the end of the first section of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 1 and chapter 2, as I'm sure by now you've gotten the point, has been Solomon looking at this world, looking at life, and saying, is there anything lasting? Uh, Is there anything to be found in this life that's going to ultimately satisfy us Uh, That's not, as he has indicted everything at the outset, not fleeting, not vain. And of course, the answer is what? No, there's not, right? And he's turned over the rock of bliss and the rock of accomplishment, and he's looked at wealth, and then last week we looked at wisdom together, and then finally this week, and and this morning, we're going to look at Solomon taking an examine to look at work itself. That question in Ecclesiastes 1.3, what does a man gain by all the toilet which he toils under the sun? He's going to look at toil itself and say, okay, fine. If it's not to be found anywhere else, maybe it's simply found in, in toil itself. Maybe it's found in being the best employee or employer that I possibly can be. Maybe it's found in my career. Maybe it's found in working well to set up future generations that are going to come after me. Maybe that is my lot in life. Maybe that's my significance. We're going to find Solomon's conclusion on that, and and he's going to begin to pivot. He's going to begin to pivot, and he's actually going to use the word enjoy, believe it or not, in our text this morning. We're going to find that, that Solomon, towards the end of this passage, begins to turn a corner to tell us, in fact, in verse 24, he's going to say there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat, drink, and find enjoyment in his toil. This is from God. So we're going to now begin to understand that This book is not just simply, woe is me, Eeyore's look on life, there's a storm cloud following me called vanity throughout my entire lifetime. Rather, this is a book that is teaching us about how to enjoy life. And Solomon's going to begin to to get to that place here at the end of chapter 2. As we move into the next section, chapters 3, 4, and 5, it's going to really take a look closer at God's sovereignty. And we've seen implications of that, Ecclesiastes 1.13. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man, right? And even at the end of this, the verse that I just read in 2.24, that there's nothing better than to find enjoyment in all your toil because God has given this to you, that there's a sovereignty focus from Solomon even in these first two chapters, but it's going to ratchet up in the next section. But in this final part of this section, Solomon's landing the plane on looking for, looking for lasting satisfaction and joy and meaning here under the sun. And he's going to do it the same way that he's done it with all of the rest of his things. It's, it's going to be vanity again. And yet at the end, he's going to say, but there is a way that we can begin to find enjoyment. And so that's what we'll be examining. Goals for the series, again, we want to love the book. In loving the book, we want to love life under the sun. And that's, again, this is what he's beginning to, to, to exhort us onto at the end of chapter two here. It's okay. It is a vain, fleeting vaporous existence that we have here on earth, but yet God wants us to enjoy it. And how does that look? And how should that look? And so we do want to love life under the sun. We want to learn from death. And that's continuing in this chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 18 through 26 that we're looking at together this morning. Solomon's still wrestling with death. There's a, a missing uh, translation here at, in chapter 2, verse 18. There's actually a Hebrew conjunction that's not translated by the ESV authors there, that connects it back to the preceding text, that connects it back to Solomon saying, look, I'm I'm angry, I'm frustrated, because the fool and the wise person, they both alike meet the same end, which is what? Death, right? Well, in this section, he's still dealing with death. That conjunction that's not there, it, it connects the theme of death from the preceding section to 
what he's going to wrestle with in our current section. He's going to take it on head on even in the text. It's going to be obvious to us. But we want to learn from death. There are things that we can learn from death. And one of those things is, is to let go of some of our idols, to make sure that we don't have a white-knuckled grip on things that God has given to us as a good thing such that we've turned them into an ultimate thing, that we've placed all of our identity, meaning, hope, satisfaction, confidence in a gift from God rather than in God as the gift giver. And then finally, we want to be ready for that judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat, 2 Corinthians 5.10, where we will all appear and have to give an account for what we've done in the body, whether good or evil. And Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, helps us ready ourselves for that day. Ecclesiastes 2.18, though, he begins rather abruptly, and he says, I hated. That's a strong word, isn't it? It's a word that means I have a disdain for. I had contempt for all of my toil, all of my labors. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, Yet he will be the master of all for which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is what? Vanity. This also is vanity. Solomon, there's not a whole lot profound to say about what he's saying here. It's pretty plain. He's looking at his life. He's looking at saying, okay, I'm going to live for my career. I'm going to live to leave behind a, a, a wise inheritance. I'm going to leave something that's going to set my family up for generations to come. And yet, he really begins to think about the reality of that and say, okay, what, what can I really do about what is going to be done with everything that I've done? And his conclusion is, I, I can't do anything about that. So he's got to leave it to somebody, the guy who's going to come after me. And we all know that story, don't we? Who came after Solomon? Rehoboam. Did Rehoboam do a very good job with his inheritance? No, what's the first thing he did out of the gate? He literally split a nation in two. This is, is not going to go well. And perhaps even at this stage in his life, Solomon sees Rehoboam coming and knows that Rehoboam is rather impetuous and lacks wisdom and lacks discernment. And he's even wrestling on his, his bed as, in his thoughts and his mind as he's considering and pondering all of these things. And he's wrestling with the vanity of going, man, I've got to leave it to that kid? It's not going to go well. And it causes him to reflect on his life and to reflect on all that he's done and everything that he's accomplished, and he feels a hatred for his work, a hatred for the reality that he spends his life laboring, working, leading, governing the nation, governing Israel, amassing all of this wealth and setting up one of the most glorious kingdoms that Israel has ever known or would ever known, save the, the kingdom of the Lord eventually. And he's looking at that and he's saying, look at everything I've done, and yet, after I'm gone, I have no control over any of it. And he's concluding that this also is fleeting. It's vanity. Man, as you think of it, all you've done, all you've worked for, all you've accomplished in life, and the reality that you're going to leave it behind, and maybe you are trying to raise a family, you're trying to raise children to be wise, and yet at the same time after you're gone, you've got no control. I mean, think of of everything that you've amassed and all the hard work that's gone on into that. And maybe there's even a, a sense of pride about the things that you've done. Not a sinful pride, but just a pride of, of ownership. Saying, you know what, I've, I've worked hard. I've, I've had a strong work ethic. I've labored well. I started at the bottom. I worked my way to where I'm at now. This has been, I, you know, I, this is hard-earned money. This is a hard-earned house that I have. This is, 
I'm, I'm set up well. I've made wise decisions for my family. I'm, and here's the reality, man. When, when you're gone, you're going to give that to someone who did nothing to earn it. And so what they're going to miss and what they're going to lack is they're not going to have the same sense of accomplishment. They're not going to have that same sense of stewardship. In fact, there have been studies that have been done that have said that most people who receive an inheritance only save about half of it. The other half, they either spend, lose, or donate. Maybe you think, well, I wouldn't mind the donation side of things. That might be good, but here's the problem. You're dead. You can't control who the money goes to. So even that, right? There's another study done, if you want to be really encouraged, by Ohio State University that found that one in three people who receive an inheritance are broke within two years. I mean, you think of all of the work that went into those inheritances that are left behind. The, the sacrifice. How much, and you men know this because you've been there, how much you've given up over your life in order to set your family up or set yourself up to, to be okay. You know, what does Dave Ramsey say? Live like no one else so you can live like no one else, which I don't want to live like no one else here on earth. I'd rather live like no one else in eternity with the Lord, but that's a different sermon. Right, but you've given things up You've taken out cash and stuffed them in envelopes and labeled them things. And all of that work, and then you're gone, and within two years, if you've got three kids, one of them is going to waste a third of your inheritance that you're leaving behind. There was a a story that I read that told of a man who had left behind a $600,000 IRA, and his son inherited it. But rather than going through the process of making sure that he set that up in a way to, to... to not pay enormous taxes on it. The son was impatient, went to the bank, immediately cashed it out and paid $200,000 in taxes. Think about that man who had labored his entire life and left behind $600,000 in an IRA. And then $200,000 gone overnight because of his son's impatience. A third of it, gone. All of those hours that he put in the office, all those meetings that he had, the times that he missed the baseball game, the time that he, he got home late, the time that he had to get up and leave early, the time that he was on the plane flying back and forth across the country, $200,000 worth of it gone immediately. See, whoever inherits what you leave behind is not going to think about it the same way that you're thinking about it right now. For you, it's the product of hard work. For you, it's the satisfying knowledge that you've done a a day's work and you can lay your head down at night and sleep knowing that. For whoever you leave it to, it's just gravy. It's just a bonus. Psalm is wrestling with this reality and he says this in verse 20. He says, so I turned about and I gave myself up to despair. Again, that heart word that shows up there, his intellect, his emotions. He gave his whole being up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill, he's done it well. He's saying, look, I've I've done things right. I've worked the right way. I've worked with wisdom and knowledge and skill. And he says, but sometimes that person must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is vanity and a great, notice even this, he says it's a great evil. He's saying, this is wrong. And again, this is not Solomon Ecclesiastes 12. This is Solomon Ecclesiastes 2. 
This is the next page of Solomon's kingly journal during his process of working through all of these things. And he's letting us into his mindset here as he's, again, desperately looking for something that's going to give purpose and meaning and fruition to his life. And he's looking, he's looked at, at bliss and pleasure and, and accomplishment and treasure and wealth and wisdom. And now he's saying, okay, well, maybe it's work itself. And he's saying it's not work. And he says, this is just wrong. This is evil. It's not right that this is the way things are. Well, what should that do in us men? It should cause us to reevaluate why we do what we do. Why we're working. Why you have the career that you have. Why you have the retirement plan that you have. Maybe some of you are retired. It should cause you to reevaluate your motives for how you're spending your retirement. If we could go at any moment, and really any of us could, How have we lived our lives in our pursuit of a career, in our pursuit of leaving something behind to our families, in our pursuit of accomplishment, in our pursuit of a, a, a title? How have we lived our lives in all of that? If we're living for retirement, what if you never get to retire? If you're in your retirement and you've got plans for that over the next 10, 15 years, what if you only have three years? Are you satisfied? Are you content? Can you say, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm ready to go now. I feel like I did my job and I did my job and I maintained a right perspective on work throughout the process. We can learn from Solomon's pain here. Number one, examine your motives today for why you work. Or if you're not working and you're retired, for, for what you're doing in your retirement. What's the drive there? Let's talk about retirement for a second. Average retirement in the United States, the average age, and it's creeping up more and more, but the average age currently is 61 years old. Some of you, that's in the rearview mirror. And in fact, that's why for many, in fact, 54% of people surveyed in this poll that I read uh, said that they're planning on retiring, not retiring till at least 65 and even that number is called into question, and some are, are working even beyond that. But the average life expectancy for a male in the United States, do you guys know what it is? 78.5. When you're really little, the half a year matters, and I have a feeling towards the end of our life, the half a year matters too, right? So being 78 and a half is better than just being 78, maybe. But 78 and a half. So if you take, let's take the average age of retirement and the average age of, of death. And that means this. That means 77.7% .7 of your life is lived before you retire. So almost 80% of your life is spent pre-retirement. And the majority of that spent working, either educating yourself or then in your career path. 80% of your life spent working towards this ideal of what 20% of your life might be. And isn't it cruel, the way that it's set up, that it's not like Benjamin Button? Because when we look at quality of life, our best years are spent in that 80%, not in the 20%, right? And yet, we're so desperate to get to the 20%. We're so consumed with, well, I need to have my retirement plan. And having a retirement plan is fine. I'm not bashing that. I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm just saying, look, if, if, that's, 
if that's what 90% of your conversations are with your wife is about making sure that you guys are ready for retirement, you're living for the wrong thing. If you're living and dying by the stock market every, every morning you wake up, if the first thing that you check is how the markets are doing, you're living for the wrong thing. See, once you're gone, man, nothing that you've worked for will benefit you at all. And you have no control over how it's going to impact the people that you leave it to. None whatsoever. And so as you think about your job and why you're doing what you do, let me say this, and, and then I'll give a, a, a caveat, a qualification to it, but I'll say it this way. Life is too short for you to work at a job that you don't enjoy. Well, Pastor PJ, I really don't like my job, so do you want me to quit my job? No, I want you to reevaluate your priorities and why you're doing what you're doing. So I don't think the problem is your job. I think the problem is your perspective on your job. I think that you're looking to your job for something that your job was never meant to, to give you. Man, if you're just grinning and bearing your way through your career so you can enjoy the fruits of retirement, what if, again, you never get to retire? Your job is, is a gift from God. Even the job that you hate right now is a gift from God. He's given it to you. And he's given it to you for a stewardship. And he wants you to steward it more than just thinking, okay, another day, another dollar. Such that, again, 2 Corinthians 5.10, when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ and Christ says, well, what did you do with this job that I entrusted to you? He wants to hear more than, well, I just kind of, every day was a bear and I just got through it. What does Solomon say in Ecclesiastes 2.24? He says, there's nothing better for men. There's nothing better for us than what? To eat and drink and find enjoyment in all of your toil. Find enjoyment in all of your work because this is from God. Man, God wants you to enjoy the job that you have. That's why he gave it to you. And again, the problem's not with your boss and it's not with your company and it's not with the job. It's with why you're doing what you're doing and how you're approaching it. And whether or not you're approaching it as a stewardship that God has given to you or you're approaching it saying that this is a means to an end and the end is financial security, financial freedom, retirement, investments, whatever that may be. Solomon's speaking here in a lot of the commentaries title this section to the workaholic. This is the guy that's so immersed in his career that he can't see anything else. And he's not enjoying it. He's laboring, he's painfully getting through every single day with the mentality, again, that is one day closer to retirement or one dollar closer to paying off the house. But man, God has given you your job to be used as an extension of everything else that he gives you in your life, which is to glorify him. If we will have that perspective about our job, we can go and we can enjoy the day in and day out. Because the most joy that you're going to get from your career is the joy that you get day in and day out. Psalm is despairing, and he continues and, and ponders, again, the same thing that he's been asking. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart from which he toils beneath the sun? This is Ecclesiastes 1.3, just rephrased. What gain is there in all of my work, in all of my labors? I'm going to leave it behind to somebody, and I can't control what they're going to do with it, and they might be foolish, and there goes everything that I've worked for. I mean, even if they're wise with what you've done, what good is that? 
eternally? What, what good is that to you? Even if you're raising the next Dave Ramsey. Great, congrats, who cares? You're going to be in eternity with the Lord. He says, for all his days, the, the one that's living for these things, all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Man, when you consider the end that death will bring to the pursuit of everything that you've been living for, there's a void that hangs there. There's an emptiness. There's a soul-racking despair that can follow. When you realize that, man, I've given years to education. I've given years to experience. I've given years to my employer. I've given years to these projects. I've given years of time away and time on planes and time traveling. And I've been doing all of these things. And yet, if I get the diagnosis tomorrow that I have three weeks to live, what does any of it matter anymore? This is the sorrow and vexation that Solomon's talking about here. That brick wall that death is that will stop us dead in our tracks. The arbiter that is death that takes the things that we value and says, okay, really, how valuable are they in the end? He says, even in the night, his heart does not rest. He's losing sleep over the latest turn in the stock market. He's losing sleep because of the politics in our country and what that might mean for the economy. He's losing sleep because he's got a deadline that he doesn't know if he's going to be able to make. He's losing sleep because he may not make his numbers this quarter. Solomon's losing sleep because he's looking at his children and thinking to himself, man, I can't do anything with what they're going to do with this kingdom. And the sorrow and vexation that he talks about, this is the mentality of the man that finally realizes that the race that he's been running is a race inside of a hamster wheel. He's been running and running and running and gassing himself day in and day out and working so hard and yet he's not gotten really anywhere. He's just spinning the hamster wheel around and around and around and around. But man, we don't need that to be something that causes sorrow and vexation, but rather something that can remind us that in our finitude, we need to reevaluate our, our purpose and our goals behind what we're doing. We talked about reevaluating our, our motives behind why we work, but now it's, it's time to, to look at death and then say, okay, if, if death is coming, and it is, then what are my goals for the rest of my time? As I think about my toil, as I think about my labor, or maybe you're in that retirement stage. As I think about retirement, what are my goals for the rest of my time? That's our second point this morning. It's this. Not only examine your motives, but evaluate your goals in light of your death. Evaluate your goals in light of your death. What do you want to do with the time that you have remaining? And because there's, the good news is, is today's here. And it's a new day. And like Jeremiah said, your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, right? So there's an opportunity to, to make some changes that need to be made. But as you reflect back, as you think about the future goals, man, I want to ask some questions 
How much time have you invested in things that really have no eternal value? And what is that cost to your family? What's that cost your marriage? What does that cost friendships in your life? What does that cost your time in the Word and, and time praying? Right, there's a, a book out there, I, I forget the author, but the book's called Too Busy Not to Pray. It's a great mentality to have, but how many times have we said the opposite? Oh yeah, well, I'd like to be consistent in the Word, but you know, I, don't, I have to be at work early. You think that's going to fly, 2 Corinthians 5.10, before Jesus? Oh, I'm sorry, you had a busy schedule. Never mind, you didn't need to invest in the word. That's, no, that's right, God didn't say, you know, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that flows from the mouth of God. That, that wasn't in the Bible, was it? How much time has our investment in things that don't matter cost us to serving? being used by God in the church to use the gifts that he's given to us? How much time have we wasted with, with worldly goals that have cost us many eternal rewards? And that's what we're talking about here. When you think about those things that I just listed, your family, your marriage, your friendships, time in the word, praying, serving, using the, the giftedness in your church, those things are all eternal. You know what's not eternal? Your title at your job. Your bank account is not eternal. Your investments are not eternal. Your retirement, is, it's not eternal. See, when you get to heaven, there's no executive dining room that comes with the title that you had on earth. You leave all that behind. And you're going to stand before Christ just like the guy that flipped burgers at McDonald's for the rest of his life. And you're going to be evaluated by the same standards. Were you faithful to him? And so men, what are your goals? Some of you have lived your lives thinking that you're helping the people you love, but really what, what has happened is you've become a roommate to your spouse and a landlord to your kids. And that's it. You've abdicated your role as a husband and as a father, and you think that you're doing your job because you're putting zeros in your bank account. But at the end, man, I guarantee you when you're gone, your wife is going to say, I wish I had more of my husband, and your kids are going to say, I wish I had more of my dad. As Solomon is talking about, you know, you need to eat, drink, and enjoy your life because that is the, the, the thing that God wants from you. And that involves rethinking about what your goals are and investing in the things that matter, that count, that are eternal, that do come with us, that transcend this life. And yes, we should have a, a responsibility about taking care of our family. We should do that. And yes, we should have a strong work ethic. Those are good and right things. But men, not if they cost you things that are eternal. Jesus told this story in Luke chapter 12. 
First, he gives a warning in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. He says this, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What should I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll, I'll do this. I'm going to tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And that, there's, there's the answer. I'll, I'll store all my grain and my goods there. And then I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. It's interesting how that echoes Ecclesiastes 2.24. But God said to him, verse 20, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Men, are you rich towards God? That's the question. And the greatest investment you can make for your family is making sure that you are rich toward God and then doing everything within your earthly power and potential to make sure that they are rich toward God. The inheritance your kids need and, and your grandkids need is godliness and they need the gospel. And they need a pattern of looking at your life and seeing godliness and seeing how much you value the Lord and value time in the word and value prayer. They need to see that. That will stick with them far more than you leaving them behind a $600,000 IRA. It's worth far more to them. And confronting our death daily even, men, it's such a helpful way for us to maintain this focus on the goals that we should have with what's in front of us. As you go to work, your goal should be, okay, God, I want to enjoy my day today. You're sovereign. You've entrusted this to me. You've given me this job to do today. And it is what it is. It's a job that I can go and I can do and it's there and you've provided it for me to, you know, I get a paycheck at the end, end of two weeks or whenever at the end at one week and I get to take that home and I get to put food on my, my family's table. I'm going to enjoy those realities today. I'm not going to make it more than what it is. That it's, it's a gift from you to provide for my family. And I'm not going to let it rob me of my roles that reap eternal rewards either. I'm going to keep my wits about me as I pursue my career. Solomon turns the corner as we do get to 224 though. As he's looking back and reflecting, and then he says, okay, fine, here's my conclusion. You know what my conclusion is then? There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Man, death doesn't have to depress us. It doesn't have to be that void. If we allow it to do what it's intended to do, and if we allow it to be our tutor, it's going to impart to us what Solomon's talking about here. That God, what does God want from me? Then he wants me to enjoy every day as it comes as a gift from him. And if you're working that day, it's not your day off. That's part of his, his gift from him to you today. To go and to do the job. And to do it with everything that you're able to. And to do it in a way that you say, okay, my goal today is to glorify Christ. It's to exalt Christ. 
There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat, drink, and find enjoyment from his toil. This also is from God. And God has designed this world to be enjoyable if we understand it for what it is. And that is not an ultimate thing, but simply just a, a good thing. Your job is not meant to be your identity. And if you're looking at it as your identity, it's going to let you down. It's not going to fulfill you. It's going to deflate you. It's going to depress you. It's going to leave you anxious. It's going to leave you feeling like you haven't done enough. Your retirement meant is, is not your identity. It's the, the last portion of your life. It's, it's the time where you wake up daily realizing that your body is breaking down more than it did the day before. And if you're looking to that to satisfy you, you're going to be frustrated. Instead, when we realize that God has given us these things as a gift to be enjoyed, he's given us rest to be enjoyed. He's given us our job to be enjoyed. He's given us the ability to, yeah, think about our future and invest in stock markets, not to put our confidence there. What a lousy savior the financial market is. He's not given us that to, to put our hope and our trust there. But yeah, to be enjoyed, to be able to say, okay, I feel like I've, I've made smart decisions that now free me up not to have to worry about that stuff, but to think about the things of the Lord now. If we will think about eternity as we live in the now, then we'll find that we're able to enjoy our lives as they come day after day. Final point this morning is this. Enjoy your work with an eye towards eternity. Enjoy your work with an eye towards eternity. Or keep us balanced. Realizing that eternity could come sooner for us than we are planning for it to come. And if it does, man, we don't want to have lived a life that we look back on going, man, it's all a waste because I never got to my goal. I never arrived at where I wanted to arrive. I was looking forward to retirement and being a, a, a great grandpa because then I was going to be able to not have to be distracted from work and I could be the grandfather that I never was as a father. But if eternity comes knocking sooner than later, see, a lot of us are, are gambling right now with our marriages and gambling with our families by saying, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll be more present, more available, more loving, more committed, more devoted, more there after I get X, Y, and Z in order. This is just, here, here's something that we love to say, don't we? This is just a, a season of my life right now. Well, it's funny how seasons have a, a tendency to string together. And you're gambling because you don't know if you're ever going to get through the season before the Lord comes from you. And what will you have really left behind? Because there aren't dollar signs that are going to satisfy and fill the void that's felt by a wife that feels like she got ripped off because her husband was a slave to his job. Or kids that feel like they lost out because their dad was never around. I can't put it any better than David Gibson put it when he wrote this in his commentary on Ecclesiastes. He says this, he says, When we accept in a deep way that we are going to die, that reality can stop us expecting too much from the good things we pursue. 
We learn to pursue them for what they are in themselves rather than what we need them to be to make us happy. Death reorients us to our limitations as creatures and helps us to see God's good gifts right in front of us all the time, each and every day of our lives. Instead of using these gifts as a means to a greater end of securing ultimate gain in the world, we take the time to live inside the gifts themselves and see the hand of God in them. To live inside the gifts themselves and see the hand of God in them. What a a great mentality that is. To stop looking at everything in your life as a stepping stone to something greater. Or to stop living every day thinking about it's going to be great when. But to realize, no, God has given you today to be great now. To be enjoyed now. To be enjoyed today. And my, my twins, my twins and my, my five-year-old, they share a room together. And because they don't really know how to tell time yet, we got this clock on Amazon that turns green at a certain time that we program it, and then they're allowed to leave their room. Otherwise, they're going to be out of the room at like 5.30 in the morning every morning. So we push it back an hour or so. But every morning that I'm at home, at least, when their clock turns green, the twins come bursting out of their bedroom door, Daddy, Daddy, my clock's green, my clock's green. And they're surprised by it every time. But they come out and they, they do that. And, and while I am sitting downstairs, I've got my cup of coffee in hand and my, my Bible on my lap. I've got one of two responses that I can have there. I'd like to tell you that I'm perfect in batting a thousand in this, but I'm not. I can have the one response, which is the fleshly response that thinks, oh man, is it really that time already? Now it's time to be on again. They're going to come down. They're going to want breakfast right away. It's going to interrupt what I'm, I'm doing right now. That's the fleshly response, right? That's the response that tempts me to think about my kids and think, man, isn't it going to be great when they're a little bit older and they can get their own breakfast? Isn't it going to be great when they're a little bit older and they sleep in in the morning? Isn't it going to be great when I'm through the toil of raising toddlers? Or I can have the other response, which is the godly response, which should be to enjoy in the moment these two little boys that the Lord has entrusted to me. And the fact that they're excited to be awake every morning. They want to come down. They want to give me a hug. They're excited to see me. Even as lousy as a dad as I can be, they're still excited to see me every single morning. And I can think about that and I can find joy there. And joy in the midst of the toil. See, man, we can do that with everything that we've got in our lives. We can think about, okay, God, you've given this to me. You've given my job to me. Is it the job that I would have planned for me? No. I wanted to be playing shortstop for the Texas Rangers. I'm not. I'm never going to play shortstop for the Texas Rangers. But it's the job that you've given me, God. And so rather than thinking about, okay, oh, man, here, here it comes again. Now I've got to get through this. How can I reorient my thinking and say, okay, how can I find the joy in the moment right now? How can I be present and not five years down the road, ten years down the road, and to enjoy today what the Lord has put in front of me. That, that's so much of the key to what Solomon's talking about in the book of Ecclesiastes. Is enjoying what God gives us day in and day out, understanding that we don't have to make that everything. There's freedom there. And realizing, man, 
I don't have to make my job everything. It's not everything. It's not the ultimate thing. And, I, and like Gibson said, stop looking at good things to be the ultimate thing. Stop looking for them to be more than what they are. Man, your job is not meant to be satisfying to you. God is. And if you're satisfied in the Lord, then your job will be enjoyable. Not every day. You're going to have bad days. But by and large, you'll be able to say, man, I, I love the ability that I have to get up and go to a job that God has provided, that gives me a check, that allows me to put food on the table. Or to go to my job every single day and, and to sit next to Bob. And Bob doesn't know Jesus. And God's given me a mission field that sits three feet away from me, eight hours a day, and he can't get away from me. Right? I mean, when we start to think about things and reevaluate our perspective on things in light of eternity, it changes our approach and how we can enjoy them. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 6, 17. 1 Timothy 6, 17, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Paul's reaching back to Solomon. He says, look, as for the rich in this present age, Notice he doesn't say, condemn them and judge them for having money. He doesn't say that. He just says, look, encourage them not to be prideful and not to put their hope in riches because riches are uncertain. He said, but instead, hope in the Lord who gives you everything, including your wealth, for what? To be enjoyed. Or James in James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from where? Above, from the Father. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God gives us the things that he gives us in order to be enjoyed. But when we make those gifts not just a good thing but an ultimate thing, we've perverted his plan for them and they can't hold that weight. They'll collapse if we lean on them for that meaning, that significance, that purpose. And that's where Solomon was. And that's why he said, when we do that, it's vanity. So he brings this opening section to a close. Chapter 1, chapter 2. I'm looking at this entire life, and what's my conclusion? Well, I gave it to you at the beginning. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Fleeting. It's vaporous. It's the, the steam off the cup of coffee. It's here and it's gone. If you're looking for something in this world that you can lean on and count on and depend on and identify in and grasp and hold on to, Solomon's going to say it's not here. You're not going to find it. But, remember, Ecclesiastes 1.13, that's how God's designed this world. He's done that on purpose. So that we would be driven to him. And if we're driven to him, then he's turning the page here and he's saying, there is enjoyment to be found. God gives us the ability to enjoy this life. And that's what we're going to begin to examine in chapters 3, 4, and 5. Just that idea of God's sovereignty and his role as, as the sovereign over this life and how that should inform our approach to our lives as well. Let's pray together. God, we're grateful, thankful for another day.
And Lord, I pray for these men, especially those that maybe are in a job that is just hard right now. Maybe it's a season, maybe it's a career. Lord, but I, I pray that they would be able to even in, in that, think about that and reevaluate that and, and find a, a joyfulness in their labors. Find a, an ability to enjoy what they do because that's your will for us. It's from you, God, that you want us to eat, drink, and find enjoyment in all of our toil. Lord, I pray for all of us that we would walk through our lives daily with an eye towards eternity, that we would remember the the temporal nature of this life, including our career, including our investments, including our money, including all of our accomplishments, Lord, that we wouldn't live for a legacy that we want to leave behind and entrust to somebody else to steward for us, God, because we can't control that, Lord, but that we would live for you, that our investments would be far more eternal than they are temporal. God, I pray for these, these men who are working, and I know so many of them work so hard week in and week out. I just pray that you would keep them anchored to their relationship with their wives, that they would remember that, that she is a gift from you, that they are to love her sacrificially as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Lord, I pray that they would stay anchored to their relationship with their kids, especially if their kids are still at home. Lord, that they would be a, a father who is present, a father who is leading, a father who is guiding, a father who is investing in them and seeing that that is more valuable than paying private school tuition. Lord, I, I pray that they would make an impact in their families, make an impact in the church, make an impact in their community, in their neighborhoods. Help us to maintain a right perspective on our motives for why we do what we do and our goals for what we're doing as well. Lord, let us live lives that are faithful to you as we seek to glorify Christ in all we do every day. In Jesus' name, amen.